the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. friends welcome to the common good Ian and brian hanging out with you on the radio or in a podcast or online sometimes you come in just really cheery like you were up early this morning for that uh, breakfast you had to do that's true i didn't i didn't have to do it i got to do it you man. Got the, i, yeah. I didn't i don't mean have to as in like a bad thing but <laughs> no, what? Really, where really were you fun. it was uh judson yeah well it's it's normally hosted at judson okay uh, but this time it's actually at um dr love's church so his church is also a foundation, and so uh, he and uh, his organization and Judson have kind of been partnering together for the sake of unity and justice in Elgin, and and Judson has been, awesome. I mean, like my family. Like yeah. it, is, it is way more than just an alma mater for me, so to be invited to like give this greeting and a blessing, yeah. uh, I, I kind of geek out a little bit, to be honest, because it's like it's cool. a room full of all these people that I've admired for years, and uh, I get really a little intimidated by it, to yeah. be honest. Um, but so, it was, yeah, it was awesome. It was great. A couple things about this. One, you clearly wore a tie this morning, so way to <laughs> be a wear a tie up. twice Probably a year. not the hat, but no, probably the tie. No fedora. So one, two, and this is going to embarrass you, I've yet to meet a person from Judson in my life who doesn't know who you are. No. It's true. It it's doesn't, really, that does embarrass me a little bit. It's really true. <laughs> Oh, I'll be like, oh yeah, I do this radio show with Ian. Oh, I totally knew him at Judson, or I, I, oh, I heard about him at Judson. And you're like, okay, I'm like, I don't think people eat and talk about me that way. See, but what you'll what you'll notice though is it's not necessarily a positive thing. I, it's, they know it's, the name. Knowing knowing is uh, it's half the battle, right? I also graduated it's my with second more... time using GI Joe That's in the true. last week. Good for you. I'm really proud of you. You're hit, you're hitting your quota. I also graduated with more work hours than anyone that I know at Judson. Oh. So maybe because the, maybe they know my name because I got in so much trouble. Whatever it takes, man. And That's the third probably thing a big part is, uh, how cool of a name is Dr. Love? Oh, Dr. <laughs> especially for a pastor. I know. You're looking for a local church, man. You're like, oh, Pastor Dr. Love. Shoot, man, that is... That's where it's at. Your pastor might be named after a fruit of the spirit, but mine is Dr. Love. <laughs> named after a fruit of the spirit. I don't know. All right, man. So I'm going to go biblical in some way there. I'm going to make a hard right turn yes. here. That's okay. Yes. So, that's what this show is all about. That's true. We do that a, a good deal. Yep. So uh, we talked, what, yesterday, Monday? Maybe a little Two bit of both, ago. right? Yep. Two days ago uh, about the tragic passing of Rachel Held Evans. And you and I had just kind of shared some of our Raw, honest feelings, pretty unpolished, unrehearsed, just kind of, uh, for me, talking about how it sort of felt just like a punch in the gut. Yeah. And then and then um, these hashtags started trending, and it was just people sharing stories of what, not just what her ministry meant to them, but like yep. what her life's work had meant, and creating space, and 
Um, it was and- a crazy, like, uh, Twitter and just blogs and everything. It, it's been a crazy uh, testament to her influence, but also just a reminder of, like, man, you need to appreciate, appreciate these people when they're around. Yes, right. Whether you, you know, there's always that caveat. A lot of people disagreed with her, but even those people are coming out going, I'm really going to miss her. She was an important voice. Yes, Even right. though, and there's just, there's some testimony going on about her life right now that's just really impressive that if you had asked me two weeks ago to describe her life i would not have described i'm like she's a provocative blogger right Right, like that's it but now the depth of her impact has been really impressive which even as an aside i have my own issues with you know just days after her passing Mm -hmm. uh people saying things like even though i disagreed with her like nope just grieve right now we don't have you don't have to draw any theological distinction right now uh, this is just a season to grieve. That's that's a whole other discussion. Yep. All that to say is uh, there was an article published by John Stone Street uh, on Christianity Today. It's since been taken down, which is some foreshadowing here. <laughs> um, but he wrote an article called Rachel Held Evans Had a Story, which is a pretty compelling title. And you think, okay, so this guy's going to really kind of pay homage and he's going to get into her story and some of the twists and turns. And that's not quite what he does in this article and the internet sort of blew up and called him out and CT took the article down and uh, he's issued a bit of an apology, but there's still a lot of buzz around like, why would you write and post something like this yeah. so closely after someone's tragic death? And so would, would you just uh, fill us in a little bit? What, what was the basic premise and arc of this article and why are people so mad? I think the 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 disappointing thing about the article is that it focused more on John Stone Street than it did necessarily as Rachel Held Evans. So it became about his interactions with her, his interactions with her husband, his interactions with her father. And um, I think people were going, man, you have a stable full of people who would have written an article for you about her, a a tribute, an obituary, if you will, or more than obituary, a tribute. And you chose somebody who probably didn't think like very highly of her theology at the very least. I almost said of her, but I don't know that. That's unfair. Sure. So uh, of her theology, they probably went at it at times. But even somebody like Ed Stetzer, who probably went at it with her a lot, wrote just a beautiful article about much her. Much better. Much a, better. And in all fairness to Christianity Day, that was also published at Christianity yeah, Day. right. Uh, but it was, just, it was just very well written. And so this one, I think people got... Um, riled up. And when I read it, I got, I, I was disappointed in it because it so much was about him. And it reminds me of like, uh, there is a, a, um, tendency so many of us have, and this feels like it fit in there to make all major events about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, like in even more so in the social media age, it, it's like, I have to insert my, uh, I'm so sad about the, it and the effect on you instead of just going, let me hold up this person yeah. and let's honor this person right now, period, period. <laughs> right. And let me there might be an anecdote or in there about my interaction with this person, because that helps add context to sure. why I'm writing. Sure. And again, I think Stetzer did a great job with that. Mm-hmm. But this one and there's a reason Christianity took it down because it got such blowback because it was like it didn't paint her in the best light. And it had a lot of eyes in it. I, I, Way me. Too many. And you're just like, just either write something nice about her or don't write anything at all if, in this moment. It felt it's, tone deaf to me. It like, just felt like about the wrong person. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, right. And I, that's what it was for me. Like, I, that's one of the things that really bothers me on social media is when 
people will take a major event that has nothing to do with them and even make it subtly about them. Yeah. And it happens all the time. Yeah. And you want to be like, uh, for once, don't make it about yourself. I don't know right. this guy. Maybe that. Maybe he's reading this, going, "Oh, I, I missed the mark." You got to be willing to offer for you know uh, a mulligan to people. Maybe he thought it was honoring and glowing, and it just didn't come across that way. Also speaks to the power of Twitter because Twitter That's blew true. up because people's emotions are raw right now. Uh, her friends, their emotions are raw, so they inundated Christina Day, and the article came down. Yeah, well, and and I think you're right to give some sense of perspective that he did take it down. He did yep. issue an apology. I'm such a skeptic that I think, hey, you issued an <laughs> apology because you got caught doing something that, and not caught because it wasn't in secret, but like, even if, like you alluded to this just now, oh, maybe he really thought that it was honoring. Like, well, that's even more problematic than <laughs> what hear, yeah. infrastructure and brain space yeah. have you lived in for so long that this would be, like maybe this is a, not a great example, but you mentioned like capitalizing, borderline exploiting like tragedies. I've seen... I've seen sometimes where somebody, an organization or a church, will create a, a an image with a quote about a fire, about an earthquake, and then they'll like add their website at the bottom or they'll add their <laughs> yeah. Twitter handle. And like, can we not please just yep. for this one moment while people are grieving, make it about ourselves? Yeah. And again, realizing that we need to have some self reflection as well because we we preach and we're on the radio, yeah. we're on social media. So like, I saw this and thought. Okay, how how can I avoid even trending toward that yes. in any capacity? If if that is really tone deaf, how do we get our tone back to hear when we're making something that should not be about us in the moment about us? Because we all have that inclination. Yeah, and I'm not excusing this by any stretch. I yep. think it was I think it was the right call to take it down an apology. I think I think CT is yet to issue one, which I think right. maybe they probably should too. Um, but man, oh man, oh man, to to keep out in front. Uh, what are the ways that we sometimes are inclined to yep. do that in our own stream? I think it's just a great reminder. Platforms. Not everything needs to be about you yeah, at all right. times. And I think increasingly, myself included, the social media world we live in, it is so easy to live in a world where everything is even subtly about me. It all comes back to me. And yep. I think we got to fight that urge sometimes. Yeah, I think that's a great segue actually to our uh, our next <clears throat> segment. We have in the studio, Pastor Lee Eklov, who uh, has written a number of books and actually an article that we talked about last week called Pastoring the One when we'd rather pastor the 99. Mm. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Plus, the show, as always, is podcasted, so quite literally anywhere you get your podcast, you can find them. And for some reason, liking and subscribing actually helps. I don't understand how the Internet fairies make that actually happen, but it does actually help us. Uh, but I am absolutely thrilled to have a very special in-studio guest, Pastor Lee Eklov. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Let me tell you all a little bit about this man before we dive into this conversation, because I think uh, your bio is one of my favorites. <laughs> it says, you've served in pastoral ministry for over 40 years. You're currently senior pastor of Village Church of Lincolnshire in the Chicago area, where you've served since 1998. You're the author of Pastoral Graces, Reflections on the Care of Souls, and you teach pastoral counseling at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You're a regular contributor to CT Pastors and PreachingToday.com. You're also a native of South Dakota and the product of a rural church. You can learn more at evcl.org. But we were talking off air that uh, you have a new book coming out, which I want to I talk about this. It's called Feels Like Home. 
just give our audience just a 30,000-foot perspective of what, what the book is about and, and why you felt compelled to write it. Uh, Feels Like Home, is, the, the subtitle is uh, How Rediscovering the Church as Family Changes Everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense as a pastor was that all the emphasis on pastoral leadership is on um, the endeavor, the mm-hmm. the uh, the goal, the mission, which is obviously we have a mission. Right. I discovered out of a lot of turmoil over this that what motivates me is not actually the goal. It's the environment. Oh, interesting. And the environment that a church is is a family. Mm. It's the you know, we speak of the these metaphors for the church, the bride and so forth, and we'll always group the family as one of those. That's not a metaphor. Mm. That is literal. Mm. The church is the family of God. We're not like the family of God. Yeah. We are the family of God. Interesting. And we, when we always think about endeavor and not about the family— Church life, especially at the leadership level, becomes about organization mm. rather than a sort of spiritual parenting. Mm. And that's what I went to, is to explore that as a biblical idea. And then secondly in the book is to, if that's true, how would you do church? What are the priorities yeah, of right. ministry if that's how you think of the church? Yeah, that's kind of where my mind went. Uh, what would a church do you think that's getting this? That is, because we're both pastors, and I love this concept. I love to talk to our church about uh, we want to be a family. Uh, but I don't always know what how to gauge whether we're succeeding at that or not. What do you think are some hallmarks of churches that are functioning as family who are doing this well? That's a good question. It's a great question, because it's, it's easy for churches, especially if they're not too large, mm-hmm. for everybody to say, oh, we're a family. We feel, you know, we love each other, and what they mean is we're really friendly to each other. Right. Family goes a little deeper, especially as a spiritual leadership, so mm. that there is a evident, consistent love for one another that shows itself in specific care. Mm. Uh, we care about names. We know names. Actually, here's a, here's a test. Mm-hmm. Do we know names? Do we care about names more than we care about music? Mm. We should, Yeah. right? Um, do we welcome uh, new people in a way that the new people get? Right. Yeah. Most people, the number one thing I hear from visitors to our church who have gone other places is, well, I went to this church, but nobody there said hello. Yeah. Mm. And the problem has, you, you know this, is that our our own people, people just generally, are just literally blind mm. to a visitor in their presence. They right. just literally can't see them. Mm-hmm. Because they don't know them, right? Right, right. And so being a family is, you know, bringing these folks in. We're not a Christian family if we are isolated to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so care, personal attention, things like that yeah. are crucial to being a, a church. Prayer together. Right, know? right. If we don't pray together, we are family-like, mm-hmm. but we are not a spiritual family. That's good. One of the things that I hear a lot is this dichotomizing of family mentality and like outreach mentality. And they, they often seem like pitted against each other. Like, well, we can't really be a family because we got to be about the mission. We got to be, but one of the things we read on the show yesterday was by a guy named Dan White. And he said, impact has become like the idol of the Western modern church, because if it's not making quote unquote impact, 
then we shouldn't be doing it. And how, how do you how do you address this dichotomy between the two? Exactly. You're, the issue is if you're doing outreach from an unhealthy family, you're asking for trouble. You're mm. bringing people into dysfunction, mm. or if not dysfunction, uh, disinterest. Yeah. Uh, a healthy. Imagine this: the house on your street, maybe it's your house, where you are consciously bringing people into your family. They want to come over and visit with you on the porch. When I was growing up in north, northern South Dakota, mm. on the, where we have blizzards, <laughs> the, the um, school had to set up a system so that kids, farm kids who were stranded in town when a blizzard blew up and the buses couldn't go, where are those kids going to go? Mm. And we, being a town family, two blocks from school, we were a storm home. Oh, interesting. And we had a, every year there were kids, a kid or two assigned to our home, and their parents knew it. And if they were in trouble, they couldn't get home, they'd come to our house. Mm. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Right, for the church. Yes. And you actually aren't doing outreach very well if there isn't love at home. And, and evidence of this is clear in the Bible. Mm. Look at the epistles. You'll find very little, frankly, about outreach. Mm. You found a ton of stuff about the interior yeah. life of the church, wow. the assumption being that solid, holy Christians create a gravitational pull mm. to the gospel. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And without it, people are coming in because they like the music or they've got kids' yeah. programs. Sure. But they're not drawn to Jesus yeah. in our midst. Mm-hmm. What is the danger? So we've described our churches often. Um, you know, my church is, you know, 300 people. It feels like I can know everybody there right. still. Ian's in a much larger setting. And so I'm, I'm particularly thinking of churches like his. There's a lot of them in the area. Uh, how can you how can you have a church that functions as a family on a large scale like that? Is that even possible? You know, I don't know. Because <laughs> I pastor a church of about 200. Okay. Uh, my previous church in Pennsylvania was close to 6, 650. Okay. I found that difficult. Our building even wasn't conducive. It was too crowded. I gotcha. just wanted to get out, hmm. right? I don't really know, in spite of the fact that I've written about this, <laughs> you would have to establish systems, mm. like small groups, for example, right. that break down the big yeah. into what I think of as country churches. Right. You've grown up in one, <laughs> yeah. right? You've right. got to have yeah. little country churches Like span of care, right. Right. That's interesting. And those have to not just be, um, we're not just here for Bible studies. These have to be family-related mm. And I'm sure guys are doing this. Absolutely. Pastors are doing this, but it's just not been my expertise. Yeah. The little really? families within the big organiz- right. Uh, right. organizations, the word we don't want to use. Within the big church, you've got little families working out. Right, right. right. Which makes sense in concept, but yeah. I, I think is actually very difficult to do yep. in practice for a number of different reasons. And so that's what I want to pick your brain about a little bit coming up next. Not uh, not just about church life and church's family, but you, you also are, I think, a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking a little bit off air about sort of your, your attention and love-hate relationship with writing. And uh, I just want to dive into your brain space a little bit there <laughs> and better understand some of that. So that's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And we have in the studio Pastor Lee Eklev. And we've been talking about uh, a lot of things, really, but mainly the church as family 
And to give a little context, last week, Brian and I actually read an article of yours mm-hmm. uh, entitled Pastoring the One When You'd Rather Pastor the 99. And you introduced this phrase that I've loved, and it's the inefficient imperative. Yep. Would you talk to us just a little bit about, about that article and what that phrase in particular actually means? When you're a pastor, or church leaders for that matter, you think that the most effective thing you can do is to manage the herd. Mm. And not only that, it gives you more satisfaction. Right. There's something there. You That's know, a we good had, point. We had 100 people at this thing we did. Right. <laughs> and, but the Bible gives so much emphasis to a different economy. That's right. Every, every encounter with Jesus, mm-hmm. almost every encounter, is one. And others are kind of looking in. Hmm. You have this striking story of the 90 and 9 and the 1. Go after the 1 and you think, well, maybe if, if everybody was lost, yeah. maybe you have to go after the lost one. But mm. otherwise, you, I think there is something about the pastoral attention to the 1, even if nobody knows about it, that somehow the church is enhanced by that. Mm. Somehow that pervades mm. the life of the congregation. And when the pastor shows attention to anyone personally, in their head, usually Jesus just paid attention to them, mm. right? And yeah. so, but it is, it's almost invariably inefficient. You guys know, if, you, if you have to go to the hospital this <laughs> afternoon, okay, that could be a two-hour round trip. That's right. I can get a lot done in yeah. two hours. <laughs> Important <laughs> stuff, not junk. Important right, stuff right. at my desk. I could be well into study for my sermon. And the person that just drops into your office or all these things yes. that absorb time, uh, that's a struggle. It's an act of faith as a pastor. <laughs> it's really an act of faith. It's, yeah. okay, I'm going to value this. Mm. It doesn't make sense, but this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So I— Going back to this concept of church as family, which I just am resonating so much with. I'm very excited to read your book. <laughs> and uh, as pastors, we all know that our churches are filled with people from broken families, right. broken homes. Uh, do you think as churches do well modeling healthy family that they become you know, places of healing for people? Or do you think people from broken families would push against this idea of the church as a family? How do you think that'll play out for people from deeply broken families? Well, that's going to be, it's already the reality yep. of church. Mm-hmm. And uh, the really healthy, wonderful family is is not that common anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that just as as uh, somebody might have difficulty with the idea of God as Father, yeah. there is a little bit of a bridge to cross. Mm. But when we bring this to, when they're there, when they sit there, I have some stories in my book just from family life of the significant impact of of a good family on an outsider. Mm. Well, the church is like that. Yeah. And so I think when we bring them in, uh, it's very significant. And it's what they've – it's not only the the broken home person. It's also the person who's far from family. Right. Right. You've got those two kinds of people. That's right. Who can't go to anybody's house for dinner. That's true. Right, right. And so to be that kind of a home for them, 
We just had a guy come into our church, Jason, who is from Indonesia. He's here for business for wow. about, I think, three months hmm. by himself, Christian guy. Man, the first Sunday a couple took him. And last week somebody heard that this coming week is his last Sunday, and they go, you're not getting away from here. Hmm. We've got to do this, and we've got to do that. And, you know, I just think, you know, we don't gain Jason. I mean, he's going to be gone. Yep. We're, our church isn't getting bigger or anything yeah, like right, that. Right, right. But this is how families work. That's great. That's really good. Because I think sometimes the the problem people see with family is their their fear is that it would become ingrown, right? Like that's that's why I think people either avoid it intentionally or unintentionally. And you talk about uh, this 515 rule. Uh, yeah. Can, can you share a little bit more about what, what that actually is and what that looks like? Because I, I know that there are people listening, and we know that we have pastors who listen who uh, who are hungry for this kind of stuff. So they're, so they're listening, saying, okay, church is family. That's what I want, and we haven't been able to accomplish that. Uh, help, help give them some handles or tools to actually actually do that. Yeah, I'm looking for this. I, last summer, my wife and I were uh, traveling, and um, we stayed in a hotel. And while we were there, I, uh, I got off on the wrong floor. <laughs> and... Uh, we were at a, at the, I got off where the maids are, you know, where all the laundry's done. And I stepped out of the elevator, and there's this big sign that hmm. says the 15-5 rule. It says, when a guest comes within 15 feet, stop, make eye contact, and smile. Wow. Within five feet, we engage and verbally greet the guest. And I, I, held, the, <laughs> I held the elevator door open. <laughs> And I'm looking at this, and this maid is trying to get on. I go, that's really good. <laughs> and, and, and she's she's like, yes, get out of the way. She's now. weirding <laughs> she's weirding out on me. And I go, no, I'm, I'm going to send that to my church. And then that really confused her. <laughs> but I, I literally took a picture of it, that's and I awesome. sent it to my church. Hmm. And every Sunday, we put 15.5 on our monitors in the foyer. Oh, it's good. code. Yes. And we really have worked at this. Oh, that's fascinating. And it's working because it's saying, get your eyes open. See, it's see. this code that's just a reminder, yeah. like, hey, we know that you're caught in the rhythm of all the stuff you have to do. Be mindful of visitors, of guests, and yeah. people. It's really yeah. good. You know, once you tell people, they're doing They'll it. They'll do it. Uh, I wanted to go back to your bio. The biggest thing that stood out to me in your bio was that you've been a pastor for 40 years. <laughs> and so we've both been, I don't know how long you've been a pastor, Ian, but I'm... 40 years, you, yeah. 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 It's about I think 40. combined, we're probably 40 years, right? And so... Could you, with the short time we got left, just speak to longevity? Maybe I'm just wanting this for myself, but Ian and I often, we're very honest with people that like <laughs> pastoring can be really great and really hard, and it's a bit of a roller coaster. So anytime I hear that someone's been at pastor for 40 years, something like that, I'm always like, give me wisdom. Tell me. Mm. Tell me more. So talk to us about that longevity. Like, How did how have you gone done the old uh, Eugene Peterson, right? The uh, long, uh, long obedience in the same direction. How have you kept right. it going? Maybe if there's one thing that's been more significant, and Peterson was where I learned it mm. when he wrote to pastors, was yeah. be a shepherd. Don't try to be the executive or the mm. star and be have a kind of holy contentment with the church you have. Mm. I came to this church in the suburbs up in Lincolnshire, you know, what I call the land of the giants <laughs> when it comes to churches. And I assumed I'm a good preacher and I'm yeah. a good pastor and we're going to get big like the others. Well, we didn't. And it was crushing. It was depressing. Mm-hmm. I, had, I, had, I had to see a counselor. It was very hard for me. Wow. But in time, I realized this is what pastoring is. 
in the main, for most people, I'm a shepherd of the flock. Wow. Do that job. It isn't so onerous as trying to be a success. Mm-hmm. It doesn't crush you like being a success. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the church grows like my previous church did, well, great. Great. But that's not so great either. I mean, it has its weaknesses. That's right, it, yeah. it takes a toll on you. That's right. And um, uh, love these people. Um, and honestly, be brave. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Pastor Lee Eckler, thank you so much not only for your time, but for your wisdom, your honesty. I think uh, I want to get off the air and just keep asking questions. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he, he, hearing what you have to say is like cool rain on a parched soul, man. Is, I, I really, really please, please come back to join us again sometime. Thank you. I'd love to do this. This please. is fun talking like this. Thank, thank you so much you. for joining us. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Brian and Ian here. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. How good was Pastor Lee Eckler, by the way? Like, sometimes you just feel like... And I hope it translated for people out there, because for you and I, like two pastors, to speak to a guy who's been at it for 40 years, and the wisdom that guy had with... Like, it was like drinking from a fire hose, because he was able to articulate so much I want for my church Mm. and for me about family and shepherding and knowing names and this and that. And I just thought like, I'm yeah, maybe you out there, you think that we read everybody's book before we have them on and that's right. just not possible. Right. That's right. one I'm going to pick up and read. Like yeah, that, no that was, that was good. I want to have him on again. It's also worth noting that he didn't have any notes or anything like nope. that. Wisdom was just there. And I think you had kind of touched on it. 40 years of in the trenches ministry yeah. that, that if, if you could survive four decades of pastoral ministry, man, there is something that I think uh, is just birthed in you. And I think, man, I would love to have him back. I thought that was really great. Yep. Well, a uh, a week that I'm aware of because I'm married to someone who's worked in this particular field. I don't know why I'm trying to be all shady Mysterious. about this, but <laughs> it's Teacher Appreciation Week yes. this week. And um, my, my wife is a teacher and a lot of people that we know and care about are teachers. I was homeschooled, so my mom is also my teacher. There you so go. I think that makes it even, you know, leading into Mother's Day weekend all the more okay. profound. My, my, mother, <laughs> my mother was a high school French teacher. Oh, she was? Yeah. Do you my, speak French? Uh, I did very poorly in French. I took it <laughs> sometimes, and my mom's probably going to be, my mom's probably listening to this and will get me in trouble or get her in trouble. But oftentimes my mom would like think she was helping me with my homework, but actually kind of doing my homework. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that I'm not sure it made for the best learning environment, helped my grades. Uh, <laughs> but if I had taken French class my senior year, I would have had my mother as a teacher, which would have been awkward. But uh, so, yes, I took French class, but uh, I would say that I speak very little of it. Can you so. say I speak very little no. in French? Nope. Any of those words? Uh, I know, like, I is like je. Okay. <laughs> French is français. Little. <laughs> this, is, this is a fun exercise. I like... <laughs> uh, my wife, uh, before we had children, was a P- an elementary school PE teacher. Oh, right on. So I come from a, uh, my mother-in-law's was a teacher. So very, very big teacher family. So, so what does uh, a week like this mean to you then knowing that you have teachers close to you? And I know not everyone listening will, but my guess is not only uh, do we know somebody, but we've all probably in some capacity been affected by a teacher. Yeah. And... So I, I wasn't homeschooled till sixth grade, um, but then we also were a part of co-ops, and I went to the high school for, you know, kind of one-offs. But I think of even, like, Bible teachers in college. Yeah. Like, I, especially, like, my time at Judson, there's there's a couple of people there that have had such a tremendous impact on my life. 
that having a week like this sort of snaps me out of it a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. man, we've got to do a better job of appreciate, appreciating our teachers because I've gone back now and sat in some of these classes, you know, 15 years later and been so blown away with, like, how wise the content yes. is and how wise the professors are. And I'm like, I wish I would have paid more attention. I, I wish know. I wasn't such a punk when I was 19. <laughs> but why, why do you think people resonate with weeks like this so much? And what are ways that we can, like, better honor the educators? Yeah, like, I've enjoyed the hashtag, right? There's hashtag teacher appreciation, week, teacher appreciation week going around. And I think you put it well. It's a reminder that, uh, you know, when you think about the people who have had a big impact on your life, you don't normally jump to your teacher's. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, that teacher taught me this, and that teacher did this in my life. And you start to remember, I can name every teacher I ever had. Can you really? I could. Wow. And so In French? Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so I think that's why it, it's a reminder of the role people. And then I, I'd even thought about the college profs I had of like, uh, just, you know, you like you said, you don't appreciate it when you're a 19-year-old sitting underneath one of the best Bible scholars, Old Testament scholars in the world, and you're like, whatever, I just... Don't want to get up from eight o'clock class. And then like <laughs> right. later you're like, oh, maybe I should have appreciated yes. that more and the molding that goes on. And I also think that, you know, uh, our, our culture doesn't necessarily do a good job all the time at celebrating teachers and firefighters and postal workers right. and right. some of the more common jobs, if you will. And so I think a week like this allows us to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to uh, uh be thankful for the teachers I've had. I've seen people posting where, you know, they brought donuts to the school as yeah, a blessing yeah. or uh, stories. And, and so I think it's, it's important. And um, yeah. Can you think of a story of, I know there's going to be countless ones, but pick one teach, pick one story of a teacher, uh, either this person or this moment had a, just a lasting impact on you. Well, I, I had a, so there are a couple of professors at Judson who have become kind of like lifelong mentors for me wow. who, honest to God, have spoke wisdom and life into me when there were times legitimately where I thought, I don't belong in ministry at all. Mm. Like, I'm, I made a, a wrong turn somewhere, yep. and I'm not cut out for this. I don't have the chops. I don't have the skills. Like, some of them are people who, like, grabbed me by the shoulders and were like, God's not done with you yet. Like, mm. don't. Like, so there's a number of instances like that, but one, one that comes to mind is uh, Dr. Dave Sanders, and mm. he, uh, he had served in international youth ministry overseas for a long time, and he there's this big conference he was actually invited to speak at. And when they invited him to speak at it, uh, he said, I'll come, um, but I have this kid that I'm kind of mentoring. Uh, I'll come and speak as long as we can co-teach it together. Wow. And so I, I flew, flew flew out to the Czech Republic with him, and wow. uh, we like co-taught this conference for a bunch of military kids from like five different countries. And That's pretty cool. And I did not know what I was getting myself into. And the fact that he was willing to take such a big risk at an environment that meant so much to him on a punk kid that honestly had no business being there. Yeah. Like, like Dave is, is so experienced and so wise. I just had, I, I was, I was way over my skis and he invested in me. He, he poured awesome. into me. And that makes me think about this because, you know, being, being married to a teacher, yep. like I see all the unrecorded hours, all the behind the scenes stuff and not just like extra dollars spent and extra time spent. Yeah. But like, I, I see her, her heart and how much she loved her class and her students. Yeah. And I think that is so easy to, to miss. I think in the big scope of like, Oh, wow. Well, I mean, if I hear one more person say something like, Oh, they get summers off. So how <laughs> it could be and like, man, I think of Katie Simkins, my wife yeah. watching like blood, sweat and tears, like meeting with families going way above and beyond. And I know that she's not alone in that. Yeah. I think, man, 
this is why teachers have such an impact on us is they're doing stuff that will never make it to an award ceremony. Nobody, nobody will ever interview them on TV for it. And they're just doing it week in and week out, year in and year out. I just think that's, that's worth honoring. That's really good, man. If you're a teacher out there, just, we just wanted to do this segment as a way of saying thanks and to know you're appreciated. Yep. I was that jerk husband who used to make jokes to my wife. At least you get summers off, (laughs) but I never meant it because they do. Teachers have a bit of a selfless job because they care about their kids. The good teachers do. Yeah. You know, every now and then you'll meet teachers who are mailing it in and just kind of, you kind of have that thought, like, why are they a teacher? Like, mm-hmm. whatever. But for the vote, for the most part, the good teachers that I know are good for the very simple fact that they care about the kids they're teaching. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that sort of investment over nine months time or whatever is is taxing and hard. And so if you're a teacher out there, we want to cheer you on. We want to say thank you. Uh, it could be a selfless job sometimes, but know uh, that you're appreciated. Now that I've got kids all throughout the different, you know, freshman, fifth grade, fourth grade. Yep. I, my wife is great at bringing coffee to my kids' teachers That's and this awesome. and that. And just, you know, you, you get reminded, oh, these teachers have their own kids at home. And, right. they're on the, and so just know we love you and you're appreciated. And if you're, if you're not a teacher but you're listening – uh, appreciate a teacher. Yes. Find one. Post online with hashtag thank a teacher. Donuts to a school. Let, let's go out of our way to bless these people yes. that invest so endlessly, often thanklessly, into our kids, our community. And uh, yeah, teachers, just know that we love you. We appreciate you. We've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And uh, when doing this show, we come across a lot of different stories. We've interviewed a lot of different types of guests. Sometimes they go in directions that really surprise us. Sometimes uh, I think we find ourselves even in the midst of a conversation that we don't even know fully how to have. And uh, that is, in a lot of ways, kind of the goal of the show for us to not sort of be these polished figures that have all these answers but to sometimes say and we've done this i think a number of times where at the end of a segment we're like i don't i i still don't know what to do with this right and even you know we'll disagree at times and i think the goal for us is to hopefully create a space for people to dialogue to wrestle and to sometimes walk away saying you know what there still is not easy answers to this yeah and um one of those cases is in the cases of school shootings for me and it is uh something that seems to be happening more and more year after year, and uh, there was a shooting in Denver just mm-hmm. miles from Columbine, um, and they think that they you know, they may have uh, detained this, the suspect, and yep. there's now all these stories coming out about um, possibly that one of the students had, had tried to uh, attack the shooter um, to kind of take the fall, and so there's uh, one student dead and, and a number injured right now, and it is the kind of story 
that you almost lose track. Like when yeah. we, you know, we were talking with Shane and he was talking about how many school shootings we've had just in the last 12 months. And I forget what the figure was, but it was like, how is that possible? How is that so consistent that right. you, you almost, you just lose track, yeah. which is such an insane thing to happen frequently enough that we lose track of how often it's happening. And, you know, I know that your kids are a good deal older than mine. Mm-hmm. So you have kids that are in schools that mm-hmm. I now know um, a pretty common practice in public schools is active shooter drills. Right. And that's a reality that didn't exist when we were kids. No. I don't think, right? Do we? No, no, not at all. Like we had fire drills. There was, you know, there were still drills and stuff, but this is now such an issue that our, our kids are literally having to be trained what to do. And I'm just curious as a, as a father, um, as a pastor, as just a human, like how do you, how do you interact with stories like this? Yeah, and you you teed it up well to say that it loses it's it's so hard that it loses its edge, right? Like you were not surprised by them anymore. I don't know if you remember like where you were when Columbine happened. Yeah. But I remember that like it was yesterday. Uh-huh. And it, the vividness of that because it was such an it was out of the realm of possibility. Right. Like it Unthinkable. couldn't happen. Right. So I remember being glued to my TV for like 24 hours just mm-hmm. watching coverage of this thing. Uh and then um, you know, I, you and I were talking about this before we came on air, just like you were like, Oh, so what were the stats? And I literally used the phrase, well, only one kid died in this one. Mm. And I caught myself and I was like, I just said only one only kid one died kid. in this. Right. Like that right. was really humbling. And so, you know, whenever there's a shooting, it does snap you back. Like you said, I have a, I have a freshman in high school. I have a fifth grader and I have a fourth grader. Those are the age of my kids all in the public schools. And, uh, man, it is something that you, you don't drop your kid off thinking, oh, I hope they don't get shot today. But you do. Uh, I do have thoughts that I doubt my parents had when they dropped me off. Hmm. So I'll walk our, our our elementary schools in our neighborhood and I'll walk our kids to school if it's nice out. You know, I'll grab the dog. We'll walk. And there's been many a time where I've given them a kiss, said bye and like literally prayed for them. As they're walking away, like, I'll just keep them safe today. Yeah. And I know the chances of there being a school shooting at your particular school are, it's like getting struck by lightning, right? Like, it's likely, likely not going to happen. But the very fact that we we have those um, even run through our mind is so hard. It's just a sad reality. Uh, churches are having to deal with it now. Um, we're all needing to deal with it. And, and you know... Uh, so to have that thought when I drop my children off on a regular basis is just really hard. It's just sad. It's the yeah. re- but it's the reality that we live in. It makes me angry. It makes me sad. Uh, you touched on the drills they do. I will never forget, man, when my oldest daughter, who's now a freshman, when she was, I think, in first or second grade, she came home from school one day and we were like, tell us about your day. And she started describing this drill that they did which we came to later find out was an active shooter drill. Oh, gosh. Okay, but she didn't even have the words for it. And it was like, well, we practiced in case a bad guy came into the school and what we would do. And she described this, and I'll never, I'll remember it like it was yesterday, man. I remember feeling simultaneously thankful. I remember thinking, I'm thankful that my school, my kid's school is thinking about this. Was that your first reaction do it you was think like, it was like a sim- it was really weird because it was like a simultaneous one it mm. was like okay i'm glad they're doing this because i'm seeing these things on the news i want them to at least be prepared right and so there was that and uh i am not a big crier and her telling me that made me cry that day yeah i don't doubt it i just cried because 
my first grader, I think she was then, oh. was in, was living in. We were living in a world in which there needed to be an active shooter drill. Right, and that's crazy, man. And then I start to like, you know, I I start to extrapolate it out. I live in in relative safety. I live in the suburbs, like. It's a lot safer there than, you know, places in Chicago or other places that where you could get this show in. And uh, people who live in those areas, their kids are needing to deal with so much more. And I guess I just wish, and I know this is Pollyanna, we, we just wish that we lived in a world where there was uh, innocence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where we didn't have to worry about this for our kids. Right. And But the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world creates an environment where we read about a school shooting and can say only one kid died. And can I ask and, you a yeah. question about that experience of having yeah. your daughter? Yeah. Did you, if you can remember, did you like picture her having to be under her desk? Like what was part of the emotionality? Yeah. Like I'm seeing my baby girl actually having to like, do you put yourself there visually or like, is the, is the sadness mostly that she had to go through it or that the world is so no, broken? That she, that, it was about her. It's about her. Got it. Like even this morning, even as I'm watching, I was watching the Today Show, and they're showing pictures and coverage of this shooting, um, and I, you see the pictures of the kids, and you can't not see your own kid there, right? Or you he, you see the picture of just the terrified parent, Ugh. and you can't not put yourself in that situation, right? Right. And you can't not put yourself there, mm. and you know. Often these conversations quickly go to uh, to guns and politics, and I don't think that's the primary thing. But, you know, if that's your bent, I just would ask a question. What does it say about our culture that these things keep happening? And yeah. you all can answer it any way that you want. Guns are clearly a problem. You can make a decision for yourself how much of the problem you think it is. But there's something broken in our culture, and I know it at its core is sin, uh, there's just a brokenness to our world where these are, or our, our country, where these are increasing in number uh, to the point that we're getting numb about them. And, and I'm tired of feeling numb about them. And um, and I know, you know, the back and forth of how we do this. I just, I long for a day where my kids, this isn't a reality when I drop them off at school. Yeah, that's what the question I want to ask you then, because... And you did say, you're like, I'm not a politician, yep. and I you uh, acknowledge the complexity of... You know, the different sides that seem to be growing louder and louder in their yep. disagreement. Um, but what you are a bit of an expert in is sin. You're a, you're a pastor. Yeah. You're, a, you're a minister. If, if in fact, and I think I agree, the, the, the heart, the core of it is sin, how do we navigate? How does that truth move us forward at all? Like you mentioned, not wanting to be numb anymore. And I think yep. that's, a, that's certainly a, um, that's a noble sentiment. Like, yeah, we got to stop being numb to these things. If the core is sin— what other than pray can we actually do? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I I don't have a good answer. I think a lot of this deals. I don't with, either. I think a way. lot of this deals with mental health issues that we don't uh, we don't put enough um, care, you know thought into. How do we deal with mental health issues and uh, bullying and whatever else? I think there's a whole myriad. Basically, when things feel overwhelming to me, uh, where my mind goes is. How can I teach my own children and how can I have an influence in the place where God's given me an influence, my church? Yeah. Right. And how can I speak on these things there? I can't change our culture. You can't change our culture, uh, but we could change the culture around us. Yeah. And so having these talks with our kids, um, praying 
And, uh, you know, I suppose you could get involved in your schools, you yeah, know, if we got right. more Christians involved on the PTA and, you know, we, we talked a little bit, ironically, we just talked about teacher appreciation week, you mm-hmm. know, like, uh, I, I think all of that is all part of the answer, but unfortunately, yeah. as we've learned, there is just no answer. Right. Uh, and so we've just got to, you know, be thankful that our schools can do <laughs> active shooter drills and that's got to break our heart and, uh, and we've got to we've got to make a difference where we can make a difference. Make a difference. We can make a difference. I can get behind that, man. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good call to pray, to grieve, and to actually put into action in whatever yeah. small way that we actually can. That's a good call, man. Well, this has been the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. Fun fact, that is actually Brian Fromm on jazz saxophone in that song. Nope, that was not. his. That's a deep cut from Brian's high school days. <laughs> you can go to What's Brian it? Fromm, saxophonesuperstar.com. And, go uh, for it. See a, what comes up. A, yeah, I'm actually really nervous now. What if that goes somewhere awful? You think there's a Brian Fromm sex? I don't think that's going to take you anywhere. Um, the internet never ceases to amaze yeah, me, right. man. Was you, it Anchorman where it was the jazz flute? The jazz flute? The yeah. <laughs> I played the jazz. That's right. It was Ron, Ron Swanson was Duke Silver, right? Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. Do you not watch Parks and Recreation? Uh, occasionally. I not a big. I, I like it. We, it was not one that we ever watched a ton of. I did The Office and all that. But. Do you know the character Ron Swanson? I do. So, I do. so he's this like really gruff, like man yep. of few words. Yep. Turns out that he actually like moonlights as this jazz saxophone player called That's Duke awesome. Silver. And sometimes <laughs> they go out one night and they see him like, is that Ron? And he's got like a fedora on and he's playing jazz That's saxophone. No, I, like, I, I like in the uh, in Anchorman where he's like, the, he just pulls it out of his sleeve. The jazz, the jazz flute. <laughs> I love that. It's a, soft, it's a soft J. <laughs> yes, the yes. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And uh, I want to talk about David French a little bit because apparently a bunch of people have started a petition against him because of some things that he said about Franklin Graham. But first, Brian, I think you got some news for us. I do. Greg Laurie, Phil Wickham, Lecrae for King and Country. You could win the chance to see them all live this August. Just enter to win now at 1160hope.com slash contest. We're giving away a trip for two. Are we giving this away? Yeah, it's coming out of our paycheck. Uh, yes. <laughs> You're not yeah, going to fly never... <laughs> well. We're giving away a trip for two to Southern Ca- to SoCal Harvest 2019 in Anaheim, including airfare, hotel, and a $700 Visa gift card. Jeez Louise. A free copy of Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn's book, Jesus Revolution, is yours just for entering. So register now at 1160hope.com slash contest. That's 1160hope.com slash contest. I just just want the Visa gift card. Yeah, I don't feel like we got clarity on this one. Are we allowed to enter that? No. We're definitely not. Maybe a pseudonym? All right, I can work on that. I can, we can Brian from Deep Cuts Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna apply under we'll Duke Silver. It, That's we'll, what I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than mine. I was gonna be like either under Ian Fromm or Brian Simpkins, and see, see if that makes it sound up. like we're in a domestic partnership. We or something. kind of are, just in this what? radio booth. <laughs> wow, we have derailed, man. This this whole back to uh, David French. <laughs> <laughs> this ad in the middle of a segment thing is uh, really throwing us for a loop, isn't it? We are loopy. Okay, so David French uh, said some things. He did. About Franklin Graham. So he wrote some things. He, he wrote some. He also did article. say some things in some interviews, I think. But okay. this, the, the main the main issue, you're right, is is the article uh, talk, calling him out on what he saw as some, uh, what, what do you call it, selective judgment? Uh, yes. Selective outrage, I believe it was called. Yes. And so what it was, he wrote an article 
in the Wall Street Journal. No, no. Uh, Franklin Graham in 1998 wrote an article or an essay in the Wall Street Journal around the whole time of Bill Clinton uh, and everything that was going on with Bill Clinton. And Franklin Graham uh, argued that even Bill Clinton's private sins can have serious public consequences. And uh, he says he rightfully asked the key question, if Clinton will lie to or mislead his wife and daughter, those with whom he is most intimate, what will prevent him from doing the same to the American public? And I think we'd all say that's awesome. I agree. You and I have had this conversation about character uh, in our public leaders. Uh, And so, um, but now uh, at the American Family Association website, there is now a petition uh, signed by 35,000 people condemning the, quote, character assassination and, quote, yellow journalism of David French because David French, uh, in an interview or in an, in, a, in an article, brought up the hypocrisy here because he because Franklin Graham said that uh, in 1998, but now in 2018, um, he's not saying the same thing about the private things uh, and he, he particularly went on to the line about Donald Trump. He particularly went on to Franklin Graham's line, which Franklin Graham said this, this thing with Stormy Daniels and so forth is nobody's business. But then this year, he points out that Franklin Graham changed course yet again, this time publicly tweeting his opposition to Pete Buttigieg's gay marriage. And so uh, he, being David French, wrote uh, basically an article that said, hey, uh, this feels like selective outrage or uh, and he just kind of called out the hypocrisy of it. And before going to the reaction, I've got to – am I going to get myself in trouble here? I'm going to applaud him because I – you and I railed about it yesterday. Like the hypocrisy that some of us in the Christian world are showing is really um, troubling. It's troubling. And we had the article yesterday that talked about white evangelicals uh, and the change that happened uh, in in what uh, they said um, – uh, about their uh, feelings about public versus private sins in the leaders of our country. Uh, and we had a little conversation yesterday about the ends justifying the means and all that kind of stuff. And so David French now writes an article kind of tongue in cheek, uh, encouraging people to go sign this petition. Uh, but his, his point overall about hypocrisy. Uh, and I think we've all got to wrestle with this as Christians, like, one of the worst things we could be publicly as Christians is hypocritical. And so I think that we need to take a hard look at what he's saying here, because uh, if I'm going to read just what's here, I'm going to say, yeah, I actually think Franklin Graham should be called out for selective moral outrage here, that the things that he said about Bill Clinton, uh, but is refusing to say about Donald Trump are the same. And I'm not even saying which one he should believe in, but I'm saying you've got to believe in the same one. Uh, because he's not saying, you know what, I've changed my mind along the way. It, it just has a feel of like a candidate or a leader that he didn't like acted one way and it was a way to jump. And now someone that he is behind acted that way and he's kind of changing his tune. And so I don't know, man, we talked about this yesterday. I'm good with calling hypocrisy when hypocrisy is right in front of you. And I think we've all got to be really careful because I think hypocrisy in general is a huge black eye to the church, to those who are out there not a part of the church and are kind of watching everything going on. Okay, so a couple of caveats. Yep. One, uh, I do think sometimes we unfairly jump down the throats of people, particularly if, they, if they've been in the public eye for a long time. Agreed. And their theology has changed all over 20 years. 
Because I've I, I've only been in public ministry for 15 years, and already <laughs> I look at 21 year old Ian and think, oh man, yeah, I'm so glad like the audio from those sermons is not in circulation. So there, I think on the surface someone could say, oh, what a hypocrite! He's saying this now. He said that 15 years ago. Now I would be uh, maybe more forthright in saying, yeah, I, I changed. I I read some more. Mm-hmm. I grappled. I prayed. I uh, in the context of community, and you kind of did. Uh, outline that doesn't seem like that is uh, Graham's response here. And I do appreciate what French says here. He says, uh, as I stated in my original piece, Graham's double standard should not define him. He has done much good and preached the gospel uh, faithfully for many years, but his double standard is still a serious mistake. And it's a mistake the AFA compounds when it uses my critique to raise money and collect new names for its email list. So here's my big baffling question. So I'm not a politician and I, and I don't think I think like a politician. I don't think my brain works that way. Um, let's just say, like, remove religiosity and uh, moral compass out of all of it. Let's just say it's all about votes and dollars. Yep. Wouldn't on the surface it still be in Graham's best interest to be consistent? Yes. Can't he still support Trump and say, yeah, but he really screwed up here? Like, f- for this flip-flop to be so obvious when every we know everything's recorded yeah. and everything is accessible why i'm having a really hard time wondering and again i'm saying all morality aside all spirituality aside, yeah. wouldn't it just make good political sense to say yep you're totally right you brought up that transcript i need to hold i need to hold our current president to the same standard i still stand behind him i still stand behind his policies i'd vote for him again but you're right to bring up some of this a yeah. very similar moral failings or moral issues that I, you're right, that I, Franklin Graham was responsible for bringing against him decades ago. Why the, I don't understand why that's not seen as more valuable. Yeah. There seems to be this protection of, of our current president that says we can't say anything that will, uh, you know, show that I'm not supporting him. And, and, and I think you said it really well there. I don't, I, I don't have an answer cause I don't understand it because it feels like you could very easily say, uh, I don't like some of the things he's done in his personal life, but I like his economic policy or I like his judges. Right. Or I like this. And so I'm going to vote for him. I like that he's X, Y or Z, but I don't like that he's multiple time divorced and has this hush money and whatever else. And I'm going to be consistent. So I think you're 100 percent right there. Uh, French writes this. He says evangelicals can never take a purely transactional approach to politics. We're never divorced from our transcendent purpose, which is always uh, which always trumps political expediency. Mm. Uh, he says in scripture, prophets confronted leaders about their sin. Uh, and, and man, I, I just, I think, I think my radar is going up so high in the last couple of years about the effects that blatant hypocrisy has uh, to the church yeah. and to evangelicalism. And I just think we've got to be so careful. And this isn't even about Franklin Graham. I think we all need to look at our lives and be like, we're never going to be perfect, but own your hypocrisy, you know, repent of it and attempt to live lives that are that are consistent hmm. um, because the blatant hypocrisy is a black eye uh, to, to the gospel. Yeah, that's well said, man. Thanks. I don't think I want to add any more to that. I think that was really well said and a really powerful way to end something that, again, doesn't tie up with a nice bow, but is something I think that's uh, important that we keep out in front. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about grief because that seems to be a topic that's uh, kind of been on both of our minds this week. But I want to take a different angle and talk about the messiness of grief and why that tends to make us so uncomfortable. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm. Nope. Joined with Ian Simpkins here. Nope. No? Nope. You Backwards. Don't I, you don't think I could have gotten away with that? Nope. I think I could have. The more I listened to this, the more I realized my, my daughter didn't know what she was talking about. We don't sound alike. You just admitted yesterday that you do not listen to the show. No, I said when I listen to the show. On occasion. <laughs> you, like, do it religiously. Like, you're, like... You're like breaking down film like the quarterback after the uh, oh, game. I'm like taking notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will occasionally oh, you do. drop in. What does occasionally mean? Uh, t- not a full show <laughs> twice a week. How's that sound? Twice a week? Oh, twi- okay. So that's actually a lot more. I subscribe to the podcast, which all of you should do. <laughs> I subscribe to the podcast. When you had mentioned that yesterday, I legitimately thought you'd listen to like one show since we started doing no, this in January. No, 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 okay. no. So, I just, I think you have a lot more of a regimen of doing it and you're kind of I'm more obsessive. You're more studying. <laughs> you're you're more doing it for the learn. Like you're, I I appreciate this about you because oh, you thanks. said you do this in preaching too. You're more like trying to trying to get better at the craft. Yeah, right. And I I probably could use a little more because when I listen, it's like oh I enjoyed that interview. Let's go listen to that one again. <laughs> oh yeah, no, let's see how it sounds. So and for you, it's about like that. Oh, I liked the feel. I liked yeah. the jive of that. I don't really do a lot of like looking back. It's like oh yeah, no no. What are we doing today? <laughs> so that's a segment for another time. Yeah. All right. So because this has come up. Mm, five times this week already, yeah. like grief in some capacity, whether uh, it's the shooting in Denver, it's Rachel Held Evans, or anything in between. Um, there's a, a woman that kept showing up in my feed. She did a TED Talk, and then she published an article, and then somebody else reposted another article that she did. Like It just can't, it kind of keeps generating. Her name is Nora McKinnery, I think is how you say her last name. And the, the title of this particular article is that um, it just says the messy, complicated truth about grief, which um, is interesting, intriguing to me enough, because I know that we all probably know in our gut that grief is messy, but we often treat it like it's not like we can programatize or systematize like, oh, this is how these are the I mean, we, we literally have steps of grief, which I think is helpful as a starting point. But when we so sanitize the experience of grief, um, I think we both do a disservice to those who are grieving and then also those who are maybe grief adjacent, right? Yeah. Like some of you listening are in the pit of grief right now, but others of you listening are close to someone who's grieving. And one of the things that she says that really got my attention was that we don't move on from grief. We move forward with it. Mm. This idea that you just, you deal with it, but then you like leave it behind and you go on with your life. She goes on and the, the Ted talk is brilliant. Yes. I can't recommend enough that you watch it. Um, she makes the case, uh, not just socially, but physiologically, neurologically, we don't ever actually move on from grief. We move forward with it. And when we treat it and talk about it, like it's something that you just sort of leave in the past, which is much easier to say if you're not actually the one grieving, mm, right? Absolutely. Like, cause your life eventually goes on, but if it's your kid or your spouse or your story, mm-hmm. it can be really, it can feel really crushing to feel like, oh man, I'm supposed to, I guess, eventually move, move on, on yeah. and it's been 10 years and I don't feel like I ever have really been able to. Yeah. And she makes the case like maybe that's not actually the point. Yeah, and she's uh, not just, uh, you know, you wonder what what is her background. She lost her husband to right. cancer. And right. so she's speaking out of woundedness here. And like you said, it's really well done. She says, time is irrelevant to grief. I can't tell you that it will feel better or worse as time goes by. She says, I can just tell you that it feels better or worse. I can just tell you that it feels better and worse as time goes by. Hmm. The only guarantee is that however you feel right now, you will not always feel this way. Hmm. And then so she and we talk. This has always become, you know, as pastors, we get to be near people who, you know, in their times of grief. 
Uh, and everybody, when there's a death, especially when it's like a like a sudden tragic death, everybody is right there for a week. Uh-huh. Everybody's broken. Everybody's bringing meals. But then naturally, and and we try to help people through this because because uh, naturally, people who are as you put it, grief adjacent, they go back to their regular lives. Yeah, and it leaves those who have the greatest loss there. Um, just feeling lonely and alone and like feeling like you said, like they should be getting over it. Hmm. Like, you know, well, maybe I, something's wrong with me. I should be getting over this. And she said, a common adage is time heals all wounds. It's true physically, which I'm grateful for. Uh, but it is not true mentally or emotionally. Time is cruel. She says time reminds me of how long my husband has been gone, which isn't a comfort to yeah, me. Right. And so I think, if you're adjacent, like you said, to those who are grieving, we can think we're being helpful when we say things like, hey, this will get better over time. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that out of the best intentions. But to realize those close to us uh, who have lost a spouse, who have lost a child, who have uh, lost a loved one, uh, they're never going to be the same. They're li- they're, and that, that should not be the expectation. And if you're out there and you're in the midst of grief, whether it was a you know, a month ago or five years ago, yeah. just it's okay to admit that your life in, uh, invariably changed at that moment. We're shaped by the people we love. You're period, changed. Right? Uh, and if you still go to bed crying at night after 10 years, that's normal. Mm. Like that's okay. And that's just your new normal. And hopefully people can come alongside you uh, and love you uh, because you know, it's not just, oh, it's been long enough. Now move on. That's just not the way it works. So one of the images I just thought of, I, and this is this could be way out of left field. but yeah. So she talks about we don't move on from grief. We move forward with it, right? Mm-hmm. So she, she kind of touches on this imagery, this metaphor of like a thing that we carry that we're just always going to carry. And I was thinking about what are the things that we actually mm. like physically carry? Like I'm, I pictured a backpack, right? So let's say the backpack full of rocks represents our grief. Mm. That the so the backpack never comes off like that. You that's not that grief is now like with you. So in one sense, as you carry it, your legs get stronger, your back gets stronger. Like it gets you you grow a little bit yeah. in learning to carry the backpack. But the straps also like dig into your skin. They can like irritate. Like mm. it, there is a both. It gets easier and harder simultaneously. There is this sort of both sides of this. And I don't know if that even makes sense. I'm not a grief counselor at all, but I'm wondering if like for her, this carrying it with her is yes, I do actually get stronger and better at carrying it. And at times I'm really, really aware of the straps. It's actually digging in deeper when I hear this song or shows up in my Facebook time hop or when I pass by this certain building, like something brings it all back. And I'm reminded again that I'm wearing a backpack full of stones. I just wonder, that's good. I wonder if that's true. Like, I wonder if that imagery is in any way accurate because like, you know, I've, I've never experienced a grief like she has. Yeah. Like not even close. Yeah. And that is one of the difficulties even of being a pastor because we both shepherd communities where people are sometimes experiencing grief that is legitimately, Outside my faculties. Yeah. Like I don't even intellectually, cerebrally know how to put myself there. All I know is I'm here now. Yep. Like I'm with you and I and I do everything that I can to make sure they know you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And that I, I'm sure offers like an ounce of comfort yep. in a yep. sea of pain. I've thought of that that often. Like, man, I can't relate and I don't want to go through anything that will help me relate to this. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I do right. not want to right. be able to relate to this. 
And uh, and so I think that this this talk and this article does a good job at helping those who are who are trying to love people who are grieving. Like they may burst out in tears uncontrollably five years from now, and that's okay. Absolutely. They may not want to be out in public five years from now, and that's okay. Like yep. they are a different person. And just because they now have good things in their life, yes. that doesn't cancel out the grief that they're still carrying. Yes. Just because they got remarried doesn't mean they don't miss their first or you, spouse. Or you finally had a baby. Yes. And yeah, like all of that stuff doesn't erase the grief and pain that they're still carrying. Yeah. yeah I remember when we had our first miscarriage. Uh, we've had we had a couple of them amongst having our children, and we mm. had our first miscarriage. My wife and I were just like it broke us because we never had anything like this, right? right? Like it was just new, and I'll never forget a lady at a church at our church thinking she was being well meaning came up to my wife and said, "Don't worry, you'll forget this when you have one when you have a baby." Jeez, Louise! And man. that's kind of what we're saying, folks. Don't do that. Like grief just because something happy happens later doesn't right. make that less grievous right just because you get remarried or have a kid or whatever doesn't change the kid you lost or the spouse that you lost right. or whatever your grief point is uh, and those of us who are walking alongside people always need to be very cognizant like you can't be like oh again you're crying again like that's hmm. not helpful yeah no kidding i i think if i have this really gnarly scar on my knee I felt real bad when I was, I was on a trip with my family and, and it like really mangled. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere and the guy, I mean, it got stapled and stitched real haphazardly. It looked like Frankenstein's monster it was really bad. It healed all strange. Wow. And all, so the scar is really gnarly. And um, the thing that's always sort of surprised me is that the wound is technically healed. Mm. That scar though, like Always hurts the touch. Really? That scar on my knee is always a little bit tender. It is technically medically healed. Yeah. And yet that's always going to be just a little more tender than the rest of my yeah. leg. And I think yeah. grief and pain is maybe a little bit like that. Like, yeah, you you will heal and people will come alongside you. And all of that's true. Yep. That's still going to be tender. Yes. And it's not only okay, it's actually, I think, healthy. I think that's it's appropriate to say that, that that is that is now a part of what makes you you and that and that shouldn't be something that you run from, but it's something that you embrace. I yes. It's really important. Okay. That was a heavy topic, man. I think uh, it is all the more appropriate then. We're going to land this plane with uh, just some insanity that we found online. Speaking of insanity, big right turns. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And we end every show the same way, for better or for worse, with some interweb insanity. And, uh, Brian, what's the disclaimer here? Uh, Keith Conrad, our executive producer, he's the one who found all of these. So if they're funny, we, we pat him on the back. If they're mildly inappropriate, we shake our <laughs> finger at him. We shake our finger. We shake our finger at him. So you, this is just you and I just, just going, don't blame us. So that is pretty fair. We turn them over, so we're reading them and hearing them for the first time as we read them. So Not just that's the article, but fun. also the sound effect. That we also true. don't know what that is. Why don't you kick us off, Brian, from Florida. Sure. Man charged with DUI after crashing lawnmower into police cruiser. Not a good day. Uh Country music star George Jones would have been proud. On Saturday, <laughs> a Haines City man was arrested on drunk driving charges after police said he crashed a lawnmower into a police cruiser. Gary Wayne Anderson, 68, acknowledged hitting the cruiser, but offered an excuse of being drunk and said there was no damage to the car. He failed the field sobriety test and was taken to the police department at the department. Anderson told officers he'd been poisoned by police and demanded to be taken to the hospital. Stop. 
At Florida, his blood alcohol level was .241. More than three times the legal limit in cocaine was found as well. Oh, no. Yeah, this is getting bad. His driver's, license, Anderson. his driver's license had been suspended since 1978. I can't imagine why. The crash caused minor damage to the rear bumper of the cruiser. The lawnmower and trailer hooked to the mower were towed. A cooler could be seen in the tractor from a picture provided by police. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. I just love that he, like, offered that excuse. Like, he crashed into the cruiser, and he's like, sorry, officer, this is really drunk. (laughs) Yeah, you're not supposed to be. Nope. Okay, Florida again. Florida woman pulls alligator from her pants during traffic stop. I don't want to read the rest of this one. Nope. A Florida woman pulled an alligator out of her pants during a traffic stop on Monday. A strange move that might just rank on the state's list of odd reported crimes. That would have to be really odd to even rank in Florida's list of weird crimes based on what we've read. Ariel Machan Lee Queer, I can't read her name ever again. You're close. <laughs> was in the passenger seat of a vehicle around 3.30 a.m. in Punta Gorda, where she was pulled over. The Miami Herald reported, citing an incident reporting the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office. The department said that the woman was asked if she had anything else in the vehicle and then proceeded to pull an alligator out of her yoga pants about one foot in length and placed it into the bed of the truck. <laughs> Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission was called to take over. The sheriff's officer said the state is often known for reports of weird crimes. Just last week, the Brevard Country Sheriff's Office caught a fugitive man who thought he could evade capture by wearing a hideous blonde wig. He's on me. He's going to try and bite my calf muscle. Utah. <laughs> woman arrested for allegedly trying to lull boyfriend into, quote, eternal sleep with dream cleaner. Oh, Pete, this isn't funny. Gee, this this is isn't funny. Dark. A woman was arrested earlier this week after she allegedly gave her sleepy boyfriend a spoonful of drain cleaner instead of medicine in an attempt to kill him. Man, did it not kill him? Yeah. The man's girlfriend, Ellie Weissman, told police she'd given the man drain cleaner while he was partially asleep because she wanted him to, quote, go into eternal sleep. Yikes. The man survived but is still in the hospital. The woman was uh, was arrested on attempted murder charges. They're a fantastic couple. I love them. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> that that kind of made up for it. Okay, it did. All right, Ireland. Belfast City Marathon course was too long, organizers say. At 26.2 miles long, running a marathon is no small feat. Uh, with those crossing the finish line, looking forward to celebrating with anything other than some extra time pounding the pavement. But on Sunday, some 18,000 runners in Belfast ended up getting just that. In a statement, Deep, Deep River Rock Belfast City Marathon organizers, uh, committee chairman David Seaton, said that approximately 460 additional meters were oh, added no. <laughs> to the officially measured course of 26.2, an addition of nearly 0.3 miles to the route. Seaton attributed the mistake to human error with the lead car diverting from the official route and apologizing to all competitors, saying that it would never happen again. I just felt like running. <laughs> what would never happen again? The people running the marathon? Yeah, yes. no kidding. Ohio, Red Giants game delayed by swarm of bees at stadium. Oh, boy. With an infestation of bees around the infield Sunday, the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants had their game delayed at the Great American Ballpark for 18 minutes. Reds players started running onto the field from the top of the first inning when umpires told some players to remain near the dugout. There was a swarm of bees (laughs) near home plate. As the bees moved above the field and into the upper parts of the stands, fans retreated to the top of the upper deck. Oh, nowhere else to go. Oh, gosh. And the top rows of the lower concourse. This actually wasn't the first time it happened between these two teams. A 35-minute bee delay happened on April 17th of 1976 in Cincinnati. And a game between the Texas Rangers and the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim was was also delayed in April because of the number of bees around the two teams' bullpens at Angel Stadium. 
This sounds about right. Yeah, I knew it was coming. God, they're huge. They're ripping my butt. Can you can you quote this yet? Son, uh, Tommy boy. Just seen at least. On the ground. Forget that. I'm starting to swell up. Save yourself. It's still funny to me. Frank, allergic to bees. Me too. They're huge and they're stinking. <laughs> we'll come back later and check on you. Yeah, a Save yourself. Your firearms are useless against them. <laughs> Did you see, if you haven't seen yet, by the way, you need to go back and watch Adam Sandler's tribute Loved to Chris it. Farley. You Loved saw it. Oh, it. my gosh. I got a little multiple times. Yeah. yeah, it was like weirdly emotional, man. Yeah. Well done. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We hope that you will join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here at The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.